All right, welcome back to another episode of the Lefty Specialists. Just one Lefty Specialist today. It's a John Solo ep. James is lost at sea or something. I'm still trying to figure out what to do with these solo pods. Had an interview last month with Evan Drellick. That went great. Today we're going to try a solo episode. But if you have any ideas about what you'd like from the Lefty Specialist during James's absence, uh, drop me a line, let me know. But today I thought I would do something a little different in honor of the start of the NBA season. I know we're a couple weeks into NBA season, but basketball always has a way of sneaking up on me because it kind of starts in the fall when baseball's postseason's going on, football started. I never really start to pay attention to the NBA until around now, around the holiday season. So with Thanksgiving upon us, I figured now was a good time to dive right in, and I figured the way to dive right in was to talk a little bit about the Philadelphia 76ers, who are off to a great start, second place in the Eastern Conference, at least at the time of recording this. And I think this makes it a good time to revisit a subject I wrote about in the spring, and that is the process. Back in May and June, I wrote a series that eventually became four parts long. It wasn't initially intended to be so long, uh, but I was trying to trace the history of the process in Philadelphia. So if you read that, this might be a little repetitive, but I think it's worth revisiting the subject because so much has happened even just since then, and it's worth sort of contextualizing that in the scheme of the process, right? So since June, the Sixers have hired Nick Nurse as their coach, they traded James Harden. Now they're off to this strong start with the emergence of kind of a breakthrough season for Tyrese Maxey. And so I think given all of these changes, it's worth looking back at the last 10 years of the Philadelphia and looking at what the process really meant. Um, and I'm going to break this down into three parts in today's episode. Part one is going to be what the process really was, where it came from, why it's relevant in 2023, what, what it really was all about. Part two, we're going to look at some specific key moments in the history of the process, sort of what ifs, you know, and examine why things went the way they did and whether it was just bad luck or it was, you know, always doomed to fail. And then in part three, I wanted to evaluate the process and in particular, not just its effect on the team, but on particular people who were caught up in the process and what, what lessons we can draw from the whole experience. All right, so let's start with the basics what was the process? What is the process? You know, here in 2023, the process has become something of a joke almost. It's like a meme or a bit. But there's something else that grates my nerves more so than most other things today. And that is trust the process. That noise reverberating everywhere in the city of brotherly love. That would be Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Good body position. and That's a foul. Steven Adams has the arm extended. He brings it up through him. And they're chanting, trust the process, in a nod to Sam Hinkie, who was a general manager here for the three-year run that brought Embiid, Noel, Okafor, and a slew of draft choices yet to come. Pablo is, out. Pablo is a loser. He uh, he coined the term, well, the process, coined it, <laughs> took a victory lap. I invented the term, trust the process. So what really was it? The process really started as a rebuilding process for the Philadelphia 76ers that they began about 10 years ago, back in 2013, when they hired Sam Hinkie as their general manager. Now, what differentiated the process and what made it sort of unique and what Hinkie sort of hung his hat on, a lot of H's in that sentence, what made, quote-unquote, the process distinct was three big pillars and then maybe one theme that we can draw from those pillars. So let's go through the pillars one at a time. Number one, the biggest thing about the process, the thing that everybody remembers, is the tanking. Tanking, meaning sort of being bad on purpose, basically, has always been around in sports, especially in basketball, right? They were not the first team to tank. Obviously, tanking has been a part of basketball. It's been a part of pro sports forever. As long as there have been drafts, people have tanked for them. That's why the NBA has a lottery in the first place. But what made the, what the Sixers did a little different was the length of time that they, that they tanked for. It wasn't unusual to tank for a specific player over a specific year, right? We saw this with Akeem Olajuwon in the 80s, LeBron James, Tim Duncan, 
the Greg Oden slash Kevin Durant period in 2007, Anthony Davis. Anytime there's a, a player who's viewed as like a can't-miss prospect coming out of college or high school when there was the one-and-done era, there's been a temptation or an incentive to tank. But the 76ers didn't do it for just one year, and they didn't do it for just one player. The seasons between 2013 and 2016, they were so bad for so long. It wasn't just that they tanked for one draft, it was that they tanked repeatedly. So, for example, in 2013, they were 19-63. and 63. That was the worst season the Sixers had had ever had going all the way back to the mid-90s. But then the next year, in 2014-2015, they were even worse. They were 18-64. and 64. Then the following year, they were even worse, winning only 10 games, one of the worst performances by any team over an 82-game span ever. So meaning for three years, the 76ers had three of the worst seasons in their entire franchise history. And that was what was really unusual about the process, the length of the tanking and the fact that they weren't doing it for one specific player, but they were doing it to collect draft picks over time. The thinking there was that they were trying to get a star, and it didn't matter, they didn't have a specific star in mind, but they knew if they maximized their chances of getting high lottery picks over a period of time, they would maximize their chances that one of them would work out, and it wouldn't be a situation like Greg Oden or Sam Bowie or somebody who, who just flamed out. By maximizing lottery picks, they had the best chance of acquiring top talent, right? Acquiring a future superstar. And that it was better to build your team around trying to acquire a future star than getting competent, pretty good players around the margin. So one of Sam Hinkie's first moves, the trade that kind of kicks off the process, is right before the 2013 draft, the Philadelphia 76ers trade Drew Holiday, a young emerging point guard who would eventually become an all-star, for a draft pick that would become Nerland's Noel. The idea that even though Holiday was a good player, it was better to flip him for a lottery pick that could, that might eventually turn into a superstar. Noel wasn't considered a can't-miss prospect. He wasn't LeBron James. He wasn't somebody they were tanking specifically for. But the idea was that by collecting lottery picks, you were more likely to end up with a superstar. And that was more valuable than keeping guys like Holiday, who were very good, but not good enough to carry a team. The second pillar of the process was to draft for talent over need. Now, again, this is something that has always been just something GMs confront, right? When you are when you have a draft coming up, do you pick the player you think is the best and the most talented overall available? Or do you pick a player who fits the system you have, the needs your team have, a position that you're missing, whatever, you know? This is, this is a trade-off every executive, every front office deals with. And obviously, sometimes you do one. Sometimes if you know, if LeBron James is available, it doesn't matter if you also have a small forward, you pick LeBron James and you deal with the consequences later. On the other hand, you don't want to, you know, there are times where you need a specific player or specific type of player to get you over, get you to the next level. But what differentiated the process and what made their strategy so unusual was the degree to which they erred on the side of talent. To an, to an almost ridiculous degree, famously, they took centers in three straight lotteries, right? Nerland's Noel in 2013, Joel Embiid in 2014, and then Jaleel Okafor in 2015. Three guys who all played the same position, thinking that we want, we just want the best player available, even if we don't know where exactly we'll, that person fits into our roster. And this draft for talent philosophy led the Sixers to do a number of other strange things during the process. So, for example, they did not shy away from guys who were injured. So Nerland's Noel, the guy they took in the 2013 draft, he was projected to possibly be the number one overall pick, but he tore his ACL and would miss the first year of his career, and that was known going into the draft. The Sixers took him anyway with the sixth overall pick. In 2014, they take Joel Embiid, even though Embiid is dealing with injuries, and he misses two full seasons. Ben Simmons, who they ultimately take in 2016, he misses his first year. Uh, in 2017, they deal with they draft Markel Fultz, who also had injuries, although that was less strategic and more complicated. But the point is that because they are not concerned with the immediate contributions to the team that exists at that moment, they are looking at the potential down the road. The Sixers end up taking a ton of guys who don't play for years at a time. They also end up taking a lot of European players who are not necessarily going to come over to play in the United States for a long time. So in the 2014 draft, they take Dario Saric, who doesn't come over to play for them until 2016. 
They also take several Serbian players who don't come over for several years, some of whom never have come over. Uh, One guy they took in the 2015 draft is playing in his first NBA games this season, which just shows how much they were willing to defer immediate needs for that pursuit of talent. And then the third pillar of the process was Sam Hinkie's embrace of advanced analytics. So ESPN ranked the 76ers number one in terms of their acceptance of analytics back in 2015 with Hinkie in charge. Hinkie made a big deal about the use of analytics throughout his tenure. And some people would call this the most important part of the process. I kind of think it's the least important part because, again, all teams were accepting new stats around this time. There had been I don't know if it's fair to say it's a revolution, but there had been an advance or an evolution in thinking in front offices in the NBA in the acceptance of new statistics. But what the 76ers were unique in doing is pointing to those statistics and using them to justify and explain away what were on the court terrible seasons. So throughout the tenure, and this is where the term the process comes from, Sam Hinkie would constantly reassure fans trust the process. We're getting better. Even though you can't see it on the court, we are getting better. Trust the process. We have these numbers that show these players are actually going to improve and we will be better down the road. So those are the three things, right? Advanced analytics, drafting for talent over need, tanking, right? For a long period of time. Those three are the pillars. And what all of these have in common and where we get that trust the process mantra from is this idea of patience, right? That's the overarching theme, right? The idea that fans need to wait, that what you need to do is trust the people in the front office, the executives, the guys like Sam Hinkie who know what they're doing, even if the team on the court is dreadful, even if they stink, you should just trust the process because ultimately it will pay off down the line. In other words, this is some real opiate of the masses bullshit. Although the process was presented as a revolutionary new strategy, it was really an ideology of believing in the status quo so much you ignored the failures that were right in front of your face. Now, where did this come from? Why was this idea taking hold in 2013? Because I think that's in some ways the more important and the more thematically interesting and more socialist question. Around 2013, when Sam Hinkie was first hired, He wasn't alone, even though Hinkie was something of an exception to a lot of the rules in NBA front offices that had dominated for decades. He was really part of a trend. Even the term, trust the process, that didn't originate with Sam Hinkie or the 76ers, even though we now associate it so strongly with them. Sam Presti, another young cerebral GM of the Oklahoma City Thunder, had been using it back in 2007 when he started working for the then Seattle Supersonics. Like Hinkie, Presti had built his team around the draft lottery, taking Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and James Harden, all future MVPs, in successive drafts. And that seemed to pay off, with the trio leading the small market Thunder to the NBA Finals. And so it's best to understand the process as the culmination of a trend in front offices. And this trend wasn't unique to the 76ers. This trend wasn't unique to the NBA. It, was, it happened across all professional sports in the U.S., even, even overseas. It happened in baseball and basketball and the NFL. This trend is now often referred to as a trend towards analytics or advanced analytics or advanced stats, things like that. And the comparison that jumps to mind for me is Moneyball, right? That's something we've talked about a lot in previous episodes of the podcast and also on the Substack. But referring to it as advanced analytics or stats seems to focus on the statistics. And I feel like that is often missing the point. What was happening in this period really was a response to a player salary boom that happened in all sports in the 90s, right? Because in the mid-90s, you know, was, you know, maybe it's unfair to localize it in the 90s. It was a trend that really started in the late 70s and 80s and kind of just peaked in the 90s and early 2000s with the rise in the mass adoption of cable television and a lot of cable channels that were paying large sums of money to professional sports leagues. You had tons of money flooding in to professional sports, far more than it had existed in previous eras, and you had player salaries explode everywhere, right? So NFL free agency took off in the 90s, and MLB free agency took off in the 90s, and NBA free agency really took off in the 90s as well. You saw huge contracts to guys like Shaquille O'Neal and Kevin Garnett, and in all cases, it eventually leads to labor strife. In the NBA, it's the root cause of the lockout in 1998 because the owners were pissed about the rising player salaries. And in all cases, analytics was a response to that. It was a way of figuring out how to combat 
rising salaries and figure out a way to field a competitive team while paying players less, right? That is the substance of all of this. Now, sometimes there's, you know, it takes on different contours in each league that depending on what the collective bargaining agreement allows and whether there's a salary cap or a soft cap, like a luxury tax that exists in the NBA or no salary cap at all. But what you see is a trend in the front offices away from the kind of guys who had traditionally been general managers, right? General managers used to be old, grizzled veterans of the sport, right? whether usually they were retired players or guys who had been scouts for a long time, somebody like Red Auerbach chomping on a cigar for decades, Jerry West, who was sort of a, you know, a lifer in the game of sports, who had finally became general manager in, of the Lakers in the late 70s and early 80s. This is sort of the kind of person who ran a front office. But in the 2000s, as the quote, analytics era dawned on all sports, what you started to see were younger guys with less experience in the sport, but more educational pedigree, right? So you started to see guys who came from Ivy League backgrounds. Sam Hinkie comes from Bain Capital, right? And that's a very telling resume line because it's not just people who know about the sport. It's people who know about ways to cut costs for owners, right? When you bring in an innovative, young, new consultant, right? When Pepsi-Cola hires Bain Capital or hires McKinsey, when Bain Capital does a leveraged buyout of Nestle or staples or whatever the companies that they've taken over are and they say we have this great innovative idea about how to improve this company what they are talking about is how to take money that the company generates and shift it from the workers of that company to the owners whether that's stockholders of public companies or people who just own the equity in a privately held company but that is really what this quote innovation is and so what you start to see is this happens in sports. The guy who owns the 76ers when the process is going is Josh Harris, who now owns the Washington Commanders and has a background in private equity, right? What does private equity do? They come in without a lot of specialized knowledge of a company or an industry, but with a general expertise in how to control costs, whether that's suppressing salaries and cutting labor costs, finding regulatory loopholes to cut compliance costs, lowering tax burdens, etc. And they present this as innovation, as finding efficiencies, as improving something. But who are we improving it for? We're improving things for owners. The same way that Sam Hinkie presented his strategy as finding efficiencies on the court. But what they really amount to is figuring out ways to lower costs for capital, the capitalist class. And often that means bringing down the wages of the workers, right? So this is a very anti-labor like position even if it often takes the guise of an exciting new thing, right? This, this is kind of, you know, when you read something like Moneyball or you read Pablo Torre's ESPN story that first ran in 2015 and helped define the process, these are exciting stories, right? These are triumphant stories about like either some kind of outsider or somebody who is legitimately smart or clever or are unorthodox in their thinking coming along and trying to figure out a new way to do things. That's appealing, even if... It strikes me as anti-labor. I get the appeal of those stories. I'm not trying to say that Billy Bean or Sam Hinkie are these villains who are twirling their mustaches. But what does that intelligence manifest as? And it manifests as trying to improve the return for owners, not trying to improve the product on the field or on the shelves, but trying to lower labor costs and distribute more of the wealth upwardly towards the ownership class. You know, that's often dressed up as, well, we're just trying to win in a sustained way over the long term, yada, yada, yada. But it's important to look at the product. The 76ers, while Hinky was general manager, did not win. They did not win at all, really. That's one of the worst three-year stretches in NBA history. So clearly the product for fans and for the players is very negative. The people who benefit are the owners. And in the NBA with the 76ers, it took the specific form of trying to delay, like constantly to sell your fans on, we'll be better next year, we'll be better next year, we'll be better next year. The same way the ownership class sells you on, eventually we'll fix this problem, eventually things will be better, yada, yada, you know, this delayed sense of, well, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there, as if this thing cannot be solved in the immediate future, and we'll get to that later when we compare the process to other rebuilding methods. So that's sort of the end of part one, right? What is the process? It is a strategy of rebuilding that focuses on those three specific pillars, all of which are united under the umbrella of 
quote-unquote patients and the reason it's still relevant in 2013 or sorry in 2023 10 years later is this is still a defining feature of our economy right private equity the ability to use quote-unquote intelligence or innovation or efficiency to redistribute wealth from workers and the public away from those sources to owners rather that whether that's stockholders or executives or just absentee owners who own like private companies in all cases the quote-unquote efficiencies involve lowering costs and increasing profits but who shares in those profits and that's that's the key question in part two i want to get to the question of whether the process was doomed to fail now this is sort of a loaded question because one it presumes that the process failed and two it presumes the process is over so let's start with the last part of that when the when did the process end now one ending point for the process could be the departure of Sam Hinkie. Ironically, Sam Hinkie is pushed out by other owners. The 76ers are so bad over the three-year period where Sam Hinkie is the general manager that the other teams are pissed off. They think that A, Hinkie is exploiting the draft system and the draft lottery, which he basically admittedly is. And also, the Sixers are so bad that they are bringing down ticket revenues and TV-like revenues for the whole league. And that is... Fans don't want to buy tickets to games when the Sixers are in town, and they're not watching games on TV when the Sixers are playing because they're just so bad. So in December of 2015, Josh Harris brings in Jerry Colangelo to be Sam Hinkie's boss. Jerry Colangelo is sort of the opposite. He's in his mid to late 70s by the time he's hired. He's been around basketball for basically 50 years he was an executive at the Phoenix Suns. He ran Team USA. He's like the grizzled old vet, whereas Sam Hinkie is the young consultant upstart. Uh, it's not to say that Colangelo is stuck in his ways, but it's very clear that Sam Hinkie is on his way out, and he resigns at the end of that season in 2016 and writes a letter to the owners of the 76ers, the, the board, and the letter is really worth, it's really worth at least looking at because it's full of like management jargon. It quotes Warren Buffett and Steve Jobs, and it just shows the way that this GM philosophy is really a management ideology. It's, an, it's not a sports-related thing. It is a, a, an, a business philosophy. It is something that exists not just for the Philadelphia 76ers, not just in the NBA, but something you can identify in boardrooms and executive offices across the world. Anywhere you see consultants and private equity guys and new managers brought in, you see this philosophy in terms of finding, quote-unquote, efficiencies or innovations. And what they really mean is suppressing labor costs. Jerry Colangelo then hires his son, Brian Colangelo. And this is seen by a lot of Sixers fans as insufficient loyalty to the process, as uh, that they cut bait too early. But it's, so it sort of seems like the process possibly ended in 2016. But at the same time, that was when the team started to get a little bit better. And just weeks after Hinkie's resignation, around the Sixers stadium, you start to see TTP written in the rafters or in locker rooms and stuff like that. And the TTP stands for trust the process. This is also when the fans start chanting it at games. Joel Embiid, the big prize of those drafts that Hinkie made, he makes his debut in the 2016 season and starts calling himself the process as his nickname. You've got the mic. Anything you'd like to say? Oh, trust the process. <laughs> Thanks, Joel. Oh. But fans will always feel like the process could never really be seen to its fruition by, by Brian Colangelo. He very clearly doesn't jive with the process philosophy, and there's a lot of people who blame him for not accurately pursuing what Hinky's goals were. This kind of comes out comically as Colangelo starts, either he or his wife, starts to uh, fight with people anonymously on Twitter. Uh, which eventually leads to him getting pushed out of the team, out of the organization in 2018, because Colangelo was so defensive of his reputation. So it's possible the 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 process doesn't really end until 2018, when Colangelo leaves and the team actually makes the playoffs for the very first time since uh, Hinky was hired. It's also possible that the process ends in 2019, when Elton Brand, who replaces Colangelo as GM, trades for Jimmy Butler. He trades a bunch of the picks that Hinky had acquired in his time, right? So Hinky had spent so much of his tenure acquiring draft picks, trading any guys who are any good on the roster for future picks down the road, and Elton Brand finally cashes most of that in when he trades for Butler and Harris. 
It's also possible that the process ends when they trade Ben Simmons in, in 2021 for James Harden. By then, they've moved on to an yet another general manager, Daryl Morey. They fired their coach, Brett Brown, and brought in Doc Rivers. And the team that currently exists is still associated with the process because they still have Joel Embiid. And as long as Embiid is there with his, you know, nicknaming himself the process, etc., they'll always be connected to it. It's also not clear that the team has totally moved on from the process. So that's the other issue here. Even though the coach is different, the GM is different, and basically everyone on the roster except Embiid is different, they are still dealing with the fallout of what Sam Hinkie did. And they've never made it past the second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. They've never made it to the Eastern Conference Finals, or let alone the NBA Finals. So could this have worked, right? Could this have paid off? Could things have been different if Hinky hadn't been fired, if Colangelo had handled things better, if Elton Brand had made different trades? Like, what would have gone different? So that's what I want to explore in part two. So that leads us to part two, which is, could the Sixers have won under the process and what are the mo the key moments, right? What could have happened? Is it just bad luck? Was it just insufficient commitment to the process that doomed the 76ers over this last 10 years? Or was it just a stupid idea in the first place? So let's start with the first what if, which doesn't even involve the 76ers. The first what if goes back to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Because again, what I want to contextualize is not just the process as it relates to Philadelphia, but as it relates to the entire trend throughout the economy, but also at least the NBA. So Sam Presti takes over the Thunder. He drafts Kevin Durant in 2007, Russell Westbrook in 2008, James Harden in 2009. And after a couple years and a very tumultuous move from Seattle to Oklahoma City, the team makes the NBA Finals in 2012. It's a crazy thing. They're so young. They're so exciting. They lose to the Miami Heat, but thinking is this is going to be a dominant team for years going forward. And then Right before the 2012 season, Sam Presti screws the whole thing up, trades James Harden away, and the team never makes it back to the NBA Finals. What could have been different? This is often remembered as a mistake Presti made because he didn't realize the cap was going to reset higher. So sort of broadly go over what had happened. So the first two stars are Durant and Westbrook, and they're great. They, they're obviously superstars in the making. It's very clear what happened. Harden's the youngest of the three, or at least the third drafted. He's really the sixth man. He doesn't really start under Thunder. I think he started something like seven games over three years in Oklahoma City. But it's clear that he could be a star player also. And it's one of the things that makes the Thunder such a potent team is they've got this superstar on the bench coming off playing as their sixth man and being a potentially great scorer. He averages something like 10 points a game in his rookie year, but then gets up to 12 the next year and is up to 16 the next year, all while not even being a starter. And it's very clear that uh, he could be a great player. And he starts to wonder, hey, maybe I'm being underutilized coming off the bench. And it's pretty clear to everybody involved that he is. He could go somewhere else and be a star player, but it's actually the fact that he's not one of the top two options that makes the Thunder such a devastating team and such a hard team to prepare for and guard against. Harden not only thinks, hey, I could probably be used more if I went somewhere else, but I could probably be paid more if I were be going somewhere else and more of the focus. He says rather explicitly in the lead up to the 2012 season, like, hey, I'm happy to take a back seat in this role. I'm happy to be the sixth man. Who knows if it's really he was really happy. Knowing James Harden, knowing what we know about him now, it doesn't seem likely that he would have been happy. But he's at least willing to accept that role. But he wants to be paid like the kind of player he's capable of being. He doesn't want to take a pay cut to be the sixth man if he if he knows that he's only the sixth man because of this great team around him. He'd rather be the number one option somewhere else if it means he's getting paid more. That's what ultimately leads to the trade that sends James Harden to the Houston Rockets. And the thought is, well, the Thunder couldn't have paid all three guys because they didn't know the salary cap was going to keep going up as the revenues were. But as Sam Anderson in his book Boomtown, that covering the team, says, it really wasn't about the money. It was about the process. As Anderson outlines in his book, they were willing to go over the luxury tax anyway. It wasn't something... It wasn't really a monetary difference that kept these the two sides apart, Harden and Presti. To quote, to quote Anderson's book, It was, of course, the process. That $4.5 million gap was symbolic. A test of Harden's civic commitment to the Thunder. 
To remain a part of the team, Harden would need to prove he was willing to sacrifice. If he wasn't willing to give up that fraction of a maximum salary, he probably wouldn't be willing later to sacrifice more important things. Playing time, shots, individual glory. End quote. Notice how that expresses the ideology of the process very clearly. What Anderson is saying as he summarizes Presti's view is, the commitment to the team is symbolized by your commitment to making less money. Of course, you could build a team with three superstars, having each superstar take a, lim a more limited role than they were capable of. And if you paid them like the superstars they were capable of being, I don't think anybody would object. The problem is Presti is asking Harden to take less money than he could otherwise get because of, quote, a civic commitment to the Thunder. It's making Harden's commitment to the team contingent on, on lowering his salary. Is that really fair? Is Presti really looking out for the team or is he looking out for the owner's pocketbooks? What does the process really mean? The process is about lowering salaries. It not only is about that, it equates that with your commitment to the team. Harden ends up getting traded to the Thunder. The team is great in 2012 and 2013. Without him, they're the number one overall seed. But then Russell Westbrook gets hurt in the playoffs and they get bumped in the second round. Westbrook getting hurt leads into the next half, you know, halfway through the next season. He only played about 45 games in 2013-2014. But hey, you know what would have really made them better off in the absence of Westbrook? Having another superstar guard on your bench who you could have simply moved into the starting lineup. But they didn't have that because Sam Presti doubted James Harden's civic commitment to the Thunder. In other words, it was exactly the process. It wasn't about a misjudge of the salary cap. It was the ideology behind the process that doomed the Thunder. Obviously, the way this plays out, Thunder never make it back to the finals. Eventually, Kevin Durant opts out, goes to the Warriors, wins a couple NBA championships with them. A couple years later, Westbrook ends up going to Houston and being teammates with Harden. That didn't work out. Now they're teammates again in Los Angeles. Doesn't seem like that's going to go well, but that's a separate issue. The point is the what if there, it wasn't just the bad luck or misjudgment of the salary cap or the luxury tax that screwed the Thunder. It was the ideology of the process. The, another, the failure was directly traceable to the philosophy behind the team construction. Number two, what if? What if the Sixers had drafted better or had had different draft luck, right? So in 2013, as I mentioned, they draft Nerlens Noel with his torn ACL. He misses a season, comes back, makes the all-rookie team in 2014 to 2015, but never ends up really contributing to a good Sixers team. Similarly, in 2015, they take Jalil Okafor. Okafor ends up with some off-the-court problems, ends up struggling to fit in with the team. They end up trading him again, not really getting much out of him. In 2017, by that time, Colangelo's in charge. He trades up to take the number one overall pick and uses that to draft Markel Fultz, a star point guard in college, and he never really contributes to the 76ers, and there's feuds about an injury to his shoulder versus a change in his shooting motion. It gets real ugly, and Fultz gets traded for very little. So in the end, the Sixers don't get much for the draft picks that they require, they acquire. A lot of those players never contributed meaningfully. It's not because they don't draft well, right? A lot of, they did find talent. Michael Carter-Williams is a rookie of the year. Ben Simmons is a rookie of the year. But overall, they don't get as much as you would think after being dreadful for so many years. A couple things I want to say about this. First of all, you can't really blame bad luck when you've gone all in on a process that is by definition based on luck, right? So the draft lottery is always a little weird. It's always a little funky. You never know where exactly you're going to be. And part of the reason it doesn't make sense to build around the lottery is because it's so unpredictable. Secondly, they got good luck as well, right? So in 2014, they end up falling to the number three overall pick. And they get Joel Embiid. One way I put this back in the spring when I wrote these series of pieces if, is if you look at the five drafts they had from 2013 to 2017 when they had top picks, and you take the 50 players who were drafted in the top 10 over those five years, and you rank them 1 to 50, the number one player on that list by far would be Joel Embiid. And the Sixers got him. And they got him through kind of a lucky break, right? So because they ended up falling to number three in the 2014 draft, and Embiid again was injured, they end up with the best player in that draft, better than Wiggins, better than Jabari Parker, and it probably wouldn't have worked out that way if they had actually been drafting higher. So luck giveth, luck taketh away. The issue, though, is part of the reason they didn't get the production they could have out of all these players is because the process was not built to. So Nerlens Noel, Jaleel Okafor, and Joel Embiid all play center and all dealing with injuries. 
So because of that, the team didn't know which center to build around. In 2014, should they have taken a center in Joel Embiid or not? They had Noel, but Noel hadn't played a single game at that point. Similarly, going into 2015, they could have taken, you know, should they have taken Okafor? They already had Embiid and Noel, but Noel had played a season, but Embiid still hadn't. And then when Noel and Okafor were on the court all together at the same time in the 2015 to 2016 season, one of them was always playing out of position, which hurt and stunted both their development and made it hard for both of them to feel like they had commitment from the team. In other words, the, the act of taking players just by hoarding them as assets undermine their development. Similarly, the stuff with Markel Fultz is probably too complicated to dive into here, but it's very hard to take a health issue seriously when you have a team that is in, seems to be intentionally taking guys who are hurt and asking them not just to get better, but to stay out longer because they are trying to tank. So there were several times where it seemed like the Sixers held back the recoveries of guys like Noel and Embiid because they were still trying to move, move up their draft position and they didn't want these guys suiting up yet. They didn't want to accidentally win some games. So because of that, when they have it a situation like Fultz where he claims he's injured and they claim he's not and they don't know, it's, it's really hard to take them seriously because they've had such screwed up injury handlings in the past. In other words, the tensions in the draft are either related to luck, which you can't really blame on the draft, which is an inherently luck-built system, or a natural consequence of drafting with the philosophy that the process was about. All right, number three, third what if. And this is, what if Colangelo had known what he was doing? What if Colangelo had really believed in the same system? A lot of Sixers fans really hate Brian Colangelo. I think the criticism he gets is fair, but it's hard to really blame him for what he did. The Sixers did get better under his tenure. So the first thing he does when he takes over the team is he drafts Ben Simmons number one overall in 2016. Hard to really fault him for that. Simmons was basically the consensus number one pick. The problem around picking him was that if Embiid panned out or any one of the centers panned out, one way of building around a center, going back to time immemorial in the NBA, is to get a guard to play with that center, right? That's true going back to Bill Russell and Bob Cousy, Kareem and Oscar Robertson, and then later Kareem and Magic Johnson, Carl Malone and John Stockton, Shaq and Kobe. You know, it's just, a, it's just a tried and true way of building a team. It's not the only way to do it, but it is certainly a way to do it if you have an all-star center like the 76ers ended up with. But Ben Simmons is not that kind of player. At the time, he's nicknamed the unicorn, right? Because he's a great passer, great defender, great rebounder, but not a very good shooter and not a natural perimeter scorer, which is exactly what you would pair with a star center. So even though Simmons and Embiid are great players, they're not natural fits because the process is not about drafting for natural fits. And that's going to be a problem for the Sixers throughout the process, right? Throughout their fruition. Even though Embiid and Simmons both become really good players, they don't ever mesh well. And that's not really Colangelo's fault. He inherited Embiid. He took Simmons because Simmons was the best player. The one thing you can kill Colangelo for is taking Fultz and screwing that up. He probably does deserve some blame there. But again, I think Fultz made sense for the Sixers at the time. And it wasn't obvious that Lonzo Ball, the other guard he could have, he was, he was debating between, would have obviously worked better. So I don't think it's fair to kill Colangelo or act like Colangelo was this false prophet who, who inherited. He seems like a bad guy and not, a, not, you know, somebody I would want running my team. But it doesn't seem fair to lay the failures of the process at Colangelo's feet because of what he inherited from Hinky, a very misshapen, confused roster that was going to need somebody to bail it out no matter what. The fourth what if comes down to the 2018 season, or rather the 2018 offseason and then into the next season. And that's what if they had signed LeBron James? If you remember what was going on then, a lot of people presume that what the process was about was collecting young talent in pursuit of LeBron James, who was going to be a free agent in 2018. At that point, he had gone back to Cleveland, He was, and they knew he had an, the ability to be a free agent after the 2018 season. It was also increasingly clear, especially in 2017, when Kyrie Irving asked for a trade, that the Cavs were just not good enough with LeBron. He was almost certainly going to leave. It seems obvious in retrospect that LeBron would go to Los Angeles because that's just what star NBA players do at the end of their career. They go to the Lakers. But at the time, it seemed like the Sixers made a lot of sense for him. 
It was the Eastern Conference, which James had dominated. They ha- they did have some young players, and the idea was James could run the team for a couple years and then gradually transition to the stars like Embiid or Simmons or whoever. You know, it's not a t- the best defense of the process I think you can make is look. The Sixers were never going to win the East as long as LeBron James is on another team in the East. So maybe the best strategy for any Eastern Conference team during LeBron James's prime was hunker down, wait for LeBron James to be a free agent, see if you can sign him, and then that's, you know, and just hope he either goes to the Western Conference or signs with you. Because, you know, no team without LeBron won the won the Eastern Conference from 2011 to 2018. But if you ask Knicks fans, if you ask lots of fans around the league, you know LeBron can only be on one team. It's putting all your eggs on one basket. And the problem was after they didn't get LeBron, there was no obvious player to pivot to. They do eventually that season, now with Elton Brand in charge, they end up trading for Jimmy Butler. I love Jimmy Butler. I think he's a great player. But again, not a natural fit because he's not a natural perimeter player. Brand makes another big trade for Tobias Harris that season, and they have this pretty good starting five of Simmons, J.J. Redick, Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, and Joel Embiid. And Harris and Redick stretch the floor, allowing Butler, Simmons, and Embiid to run to the to attack the basket, which is where they're most comfortable. The problem with that is the top three options in that system are Embiid, Butler, and Simmons. And all three of your top guys scoring the same way kind of runs into a problem. Towards the end of the year, though, as we sort of we did ch- sort of tweak how the offense was run, especially in the playoffs, mm-hmm. where you were playing on the ball more. Did that relationship evolve at all, or was it strictly a professional relationship? Uh, I would say it was professional, but to this day, I don't think that that was fair to to switch over like that. Even though I think we played great basketball yeah. like that, I don't think it was fair because the entire year Ben had the ball. The entire year yeah. Ben had the ball. Yeah. So you mean to tell me that in one playoff series you just switch it up like that? I would be like he was. Yeah. I would be I would feel a type of way. Yeah. I would feel a type of way. I would think that it's fucked up to play one way the entire year and then be like, "You know what? Boom. This is how we're going to do it." And I, I used to tell bro, I was like, bro, I think we should mix in me handling the ball a little bit. No, we do A to B, we do this. Cool. Yeah. Cool. But I I, I, w- I would be pissed. And I, I didn't, I mean, I'm not gonna complain about it. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't think that that was the best way of of doing it, in in my opinion. That offseason after Kawhi Leonard's shot goes in. They end up choosing Harris to make a long-term commitment to over Butler for that reason, but it's quite obvious that they were trying to build around Embiid and Simmons, but by losing Butler, they lost an element of killer instinct, potentially. When that Kawhi shot went in, yeah, what was going through your head? What was going through my head? Uh, a lot. A lot was going through my head, man, and I already knew how... I believe it would have worked out if that shot wouldn't have went in and we go into overtime and we win. Um, so the shot goes in, we go back to the locker room. I'm I'm in awe a little bit. And then after like everything settles down, the first thing that uh, comes to my mind legit is, will I be back here? Will I have an opportunity to do this again with these guys? Uh, I, and to tell you the truth, I had a feeling that it would be a no. I had a feeling that it would be a no. Um, but I, I would say that, that that's the first thing that, that ran through my head was, yo, are we actually going to be able to run this back? And if I'm being honest, I was like, nah, it's not going to happen. That was my first thought, too. Yeah. was like, well, not my first thought. There's the disappointment. There's yeah, the no, tears. No, there's the hug your teammates. Yeah. But then, like, it's like the realization, like, Shit, I might not might not get this close again, right? Man. You think that? I knew I wasn't coming back when I had my exit meeting with Elton. And he didn't t- say that to me, like, we don't want you back. I just knew, like, they were going to – I was only going to go back there if they had no other options, mm. basically. I really – that's how – I mean, that was the vibe I got in that meeting. So I kind of knew. I kind of knew. When did you know? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> 
I knew I wasn't going back at one point in time. I, now, before I say this sentence, do you think I'm like just that hard to work with? <laughs> Am I hard to work is this with? From the, is this the phone call after free agency? Is this from the phone call? Is this what you're talking about? No, no, no. This is this is before the phone no, call. I don't think you're hard to work right? with. Yeah. No, I'm not hard to work with. So I ain't throwing nobody under the bus since you think that I seem to throw people under the bus. Somebody told me that uh, a main reason that I, I didn't go back was because somebody asked, can you control him? Like, can you control Jimmy? If you can control Jimmy, we would think about having him back. Yeah. I was like, you don't got to worry about it. Shit, can't nobody control me. For one, I ain't just out there doing no bullshit. But the fact that you're trying to control a grown man, nah, I'm cool. Because I don't do nothing that's just drastically fucking stupidly crazy. <laughs> I do not do that. So don't sit here and come at me with the, oh, we got to try to control him. Nah, you good. Don't even worry about it. And that was that was my what you call it. You ain't got to worry about me coming. I'm not. If that's what y'all worried about, if that's what y'all worried about, I think, man, good luck to y'all. Now, I don't like, you know, psychoanalyzing teams too much, but the point here is that what they're trying to do is build around the original sin of pairing Embiid and Simmons, which never worked out, never was a natural fit, and even though both are very talented players, Simmons' inability to shoot haunts them and keeps them from maximally emphasizing Embiid's abilities. Not coincidentally, Embiid's best years eventually come after Simmons is traded for James Harden and, they, and, and Embiid is finally paired with an elite outside scorer. We're going to get to that in a second because that brings us to our fifth what if, which is, what if Simmons had made that dunk? So very famously at the end of, in the 2021 playoffs, the 76ers are matched up against the Atlanta Hawks, goes to game seven. The Sixers are down two. Simmons has the ball on the, you know, in the inside post, has a clear shot to dunk the ball. But seemingly hearing footsteps, not knowing who's around him, he ends up passing up the dunk. The other player is fouled, makes one of two foul shots, and they never again have a chance to tie the game after Simmons does this, right? Simmons, they cleared out for tapping his way in. Spins on Gallinari, gives it up. Oh, he was right there. And a foul as Thibel goes to the basket. Boy, Simmons, uncontested, had a layup, but he leaves it for Thibel, who makes something out of it and is headed to the line. Well, but that's when you know that the game is in your head. That's a oh, dunk for man. Ben Simmons right there. You got it. And I know you got it to Thibel. You got the free throws. But Ben Simmons, you got to shoot that shot. Be confident. Afterwards, both Embiid and his coach, Doc Rivers, kind of throw Simmons under the bus and blame him for this decision. It is obviously a terrible decision. Simmons didn't realize that the guy guarding him was Trey Young, who's like nine inches shorter than Simmons, and he could have dunked over him. But it seems to symbolize Simmons' inability to score, which, if anything, has gotten worse since he was drafted in 2016. He seems scared to shoot at times. His outside shot and foul shooting have decreased over that period of time the thinking was well shooting can develop it's his other skills that are so important but the shooting never ends up actually developing now that's partially the Sixers fault for not developing it for him but I think the the problem is that on another team with another set of players around him who maybe did have outside shots who maybe did have more of a presence on the offensive side of the ball that could have been overcome but because he's paired with Embiid who is an inside player, and you want to draw defenders away from him, it just becomes a glaring hole in the Sixers' system. And when Simmons, is cam Simmons can't make that dunk, it totally implodes the team. So afterwards, Simmons refuses to play for the 76ers, claiming it's a mental health issue. It ultimately leads to his trade for James Harden, blowing up that core. That was really what the process had built, right? So Embiid and Simmons are the two guys who... Uh, who emerged from those lottery picks as the two best players. And again, I think Simmons now has been viewed as like an albatross. You know, I think ever since then, he's viewed as like a bust. 
think that's a little unfair. Simmons was a great player for the 76ers. He had a triple-double in like his fifth game. It's, you know, the first time that had happened since 1967. He is a very special player. It's just that you need the right system to take advantage of his specialness. And I think this goes back to the original sin of the process, which is treating players like assets or commodities rather than people with skills who need to be developed and cultivated, right? The idea was that, well, we'll figure it out as we go. But when you figure it out, the problem is you might have lost or squandered or stifled out the abilities that the player had in the first place. So again, I think these these sort of inflection points in the history of the last decade of the 76ers and broadly in the history of the process are not just random events. They are all sort of not necessarily inevitable outcomes, but natural outcomes of the philosophy internalized in the process. And this brings us to part three, which is evaluating the winners and losers of the process. So one of the winners, ironically, is Sam Hinkie, who is sort of still viewed as this like fallen prophet. Because I think one of the advantages ideologically of this way of thinking is that these executives, these leaders, these sort of brilliant innovators, they can never fail. They can only be failed, right? When you have a, a philosophy that is always built on delaying gratification and delay and saying, oh, well, we just need to tweak it. We just need to keep going. We just need to sort of power through. We just need to be patient. We just need to be committed. You can always blame failures on insufficient commitment by the other people, right? You can always say, well, this is too early. We're too early. You gave up too quickly. You didn't commit. I think this is this happens all the time with sort of you know, what we might call wonks or innovators or tech geniuses. I think you see this a little bit with a lot of the hype around AI, right? This idea that eventually this will change everything. This will be brilliant. This will save the world. But you just have to be patient. You just have to be patient. You just have to be patient. It's this constant reassuring that we, the smart people, know what we're doing. And in spite of all evidence to the contrary, you need to be paid. You need to be. You need to keep going with us because we have the numbers. We know the facts, and ultimately this will pay off. And finally, one of the other winners in this in the process was the other teams in the NBA. Right. So the Sixers kept losing. The other teams had to win. And I think it's important to to reevaluate one of the premises of the process. The way it is justified constantly is by saying something to the effect of. Well, what you don't want is to be in, quote, purgatory, right? You don't want to be pretty good. That the thing you want to avoid is just being pretty good, right? The way the 76ers were before the Sam Hinkie took over was kind of this middle ground, right? They were never one of the best teams in the East. They were never one of the worst. They were kind of in the middle. They would make the playoffs as the eight or seven seed for every once in a while. They were built around guys like Andre Iguodala, Lou Williams, Drew Holiday, Guys who were good players, but were better off probably in a complementary role. They didn't really have a star after they traded Allen Iverson back in 2006 or 2007. I can't remember when he went to Denver. But ever since then, there you know the, the Sixers had been in this awkward middle stage. And the thinking was, in order to get from that awkward middle stage, you got to be terrible before you can be good. And people really believe that, but it's just not true. If you look at teams that have quote-unquote built through the draft, it's very rare, outside of the Thunder example, that you build a dynasty off of several lottery picks in a row. Sometimes a lottery pick is important, right? LeBron James was a lottery pick. He turned out to be pretty good for the Cavaliers. Michael Jordan was a lottery pick. You know, Magic Johnson was the number one overall pick. But usually it comes with pairing a lottery pick with really good players around him. The, the, exactly the type of players the Sixers were trying to get rid of. Guys like Lou Williams, guys like Drew Holiday, guys like Andre Iguodala. It's sort of revealing to me that both Iguodala and Holiday would eventually get rings as these kinds of pretty good players paired with superstars. So Iguodala wins with the Warriors when he's paired with Curry. Holiday wins when he's paired with Giannis in Milwaukee. But, you know, this idea that you have to be bad for a little while, I think it's interesting to go back to that, you know, Kawhi shot. Toronto, interestingly, before they ended up with Leonard, was exactly the type of team that the Sixers were saying you definitely can't be, right? The Raptors were a pretty good team. They were built around, you know, they'd never been terrible. They had had some pretty good years. They were kind of in the middle of that Eastern Conference. They had, were built around a guy like DeMar DeRozan. They had a lot of competent players around him, Van Vliet, Kyle Lowry, etc. Then, of course, Kawhi Leonard becomes available, 
they strike while the iron's hot, they make a big trade for him, and then they have a good team to put around a superstar, right? When a superstar falls into your lap, either because you're able to draft him uh, or you're able to, you know, find him in free agency or a trade, you want to already have pieces in place. When you have a guy like Embiid, you don't want to build from him from scratch and waste his prime by trying to pair him with good players. You want to have a good team already. Being pretty good is not worse than being terrible. It's better than being terrible. Winning is better than losing. I don't know why executives are always trying to say the opposite and fans are so ready to believe them. But it's very important to remember that the teams that benefited from the Sixers being so bad were other teams in the East, right? So even after LeBron leaves, Toronto makes the finals, the Heat make the finals, the Celtics make the finals, all teams that were were built very differently from the way the Sixers tried to build themselves. They built themselves in some ways the old-fashioned way. On the other hand, the people who suffer are the fans, first of all, right, who had to endure a couple years of of just dreadful performances by the 76ers, which I think is important because it really kills the sport for the fan base, right? So we think of, you know, if you think of how you became a fan of the teams you loved, it was probably over a couple of years in your childhood when the team was... And you were very interested in sports, the team was good, or the team was fun, and you latched on to them. Three years of terrible play doesn't seem like a lot to an adult. I mean, it does if you're a fan. But, you, you know, people have perspective, right? I can handle anything for, for a couple years. That's sort of the thinking. But when you're a kid just getting into sports, which is how the fan, how the sport attracts fans is by getting kids when they're into it. If the Sixers are dreadful by the, for the period where you're like 8 to 10, By the time you're 11 and the team starts to get good, you don't care about basketball. You're not a basketball fan anymore, right? Maybe you're an Eagles fan. You're a Phillies fan. You're you're just not going to care about the 76ers. Maybe you don't want to play. Maybe you don't watch sports. You just play video games. And I think for a league that is trying to build a fan base, that's really bad. It's also bad, and this is where my pro labor allegiances are important. Here is it's really terrible for the players who are forced to sit through this process, right? There's this, you know, the Pablo Torre ESPN.com article that came out in 2015 that really kind of popularized the phrase, trust the process. It's so sad to revisit that because a lot of the people who defend it are the players on the team who have like bought into the hype that, oh, we're going to be good down the road. But all those players, for the most part, were cut, right? So the the photo on the that ran with that story in 2015, right? This is that's supposed to be the photo of the future superstars of the Sixers. It's Joel Embiid, who had just been drafted and had not yet played, but the, the, the thought was Embiid would be the future of the franchise, and they were right. But the other two guys in that photo are not Simmons and Markel Fultz. They're, it's Michael Carter-Williams, who won the Rookie of the Year in 2013-2014. He was a great player, but where's Michael Carter-Williams now? And the other guy was Nerlens Noel. Another player who made the all-rookie team in 2015, it was reasonable to believe that those guys would be superstars. But the the crucial years of their career were spent being jerked around by a team that didn't care about winning, that didn't care about playing them at a position, that didn't care about developing them as players. It was actually sort of using them as cannon fodder for these awful seasons. And it's, it's reasonable to believe it completely stunted their development. And not to, even, not to mention guys... Like who were lower on the depth chart, guys like Robert Covington and Tony Woten or something like that. Like these guys really suffered for playing, for just having the bad luck to work for the Sixers when Sam Hinkie had this cockamamie idea to tank for the build through the draft. And then lastly, the people hurt even is even somebody like Joel Embiid, who you know seems like it turned out great for him. And Embiid, in some ways, is the face of the process, right? He nicknames himself the process. He quotes that line the most. And I understand it, right? Here's somebody who was drafted by Sam Hinkie and then missed two full seasons due to injury. And by the time he suits up for the Philadelphia 76ers, the general manager who's drafted him was fired. You know, it's reasonable for Embiid to feel some guilt about that, that if I had only been healthy, Hinkie would still have his job. If I had gotten back on the court, this guy who believed in me would have, you know, would have stuck around. And because of that, Embiid starts to sort of believe in that system. But he doesn't realize that the system that he he's buying into is the system that left him on a team that was not built around him. If Hinky really did believe in Embiid, first of all, he would not have drafted Jalil Okafor the next year. Second of all, 
he would have built around Embiid in a more competent way. He would have built pieces that made sense with Embiid's skill set. It's not believing in players to draft injured players with the hopes that they will eventually get healed. It's treating them like commodities who can be interchanged, who can be parts who can be plugged in and plugged out and subbed in and subbed out as if they are like cogs in a machine. And that's a very dehumanizing way to treat players. Embiid has had a good career, reigning MVP, two-time NBA scoring champion, probably going to be in the Hall of Fame. But he's going to be 30 this year. He's never played in the Eastern Conference Finals. His career's been wrapped up in the drama around the 76ers, not just the process, but also the shit with Ben Simmons, the shit with James Harden. Hopefully the stuff with him and Maxie works out. I kind of like the Sixers team this season. I like Nick Nurse. I think he's a really good coach to be paired with, with Embiid. You know, I might be rooting for the 76ers, honestly, for the first time in a long time this season because I've held such animosity towards them. Because again, the people who benefit from the process, the people who benefit from this are the owners, basically, because they have equated this idea of innovation and efficiency, which are appealing ideas that not just the people who are doing it root for, but the fans can root for, and even outsiders find it charming when somebody finds a better way. You know, when you build a better mousetrap, everybody likes that. But, but, but by equating innovation and efficiency with the things that are really about salary suppression. Remember the, the Boomtown quote about James Harden not demonstrating his civic commitment to the Thunder by not taking what was essentially a $4.5 million pay cut. By equating efficiency and innovation with cost savings to the owners, it doesn't matter if the, uh, the product on the court or the product on the shelf or the product you know, that consumers are consuming is any good. The owners have already won. And that's why I think the process is so important to look back on now. I think the lessons of that are around us all the time, right? When you hear people talk about innovation and efficiencies and, you know, cutting edge ways, and you hear people described as whiz kids the way Sam Hinkie was, and you hear things described as analytics, ask yourself, what is the problem they're trying to solve? Is the problem really about, in this case, winning basketball games? Because look, if you want to win basketball games, there are ways to do it. About proving things for society, improving things for the fans, improving things for the players, or is it about improving things for the owners? And I think we somehow live in a world where efficiency is equated with what's good for the owners. Progress is equated with what's good for the ownership class. And the process represents a window into how that all happened.